0: the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, why not consider making a small donation. Details at arabdigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Dr. David Roberts, an associate professor at King's College London and a senior lecturer in King's School of Security Studies for Regional Security and Development. David is adjunct faculty at Sciences Po's Paris School of International Affairs and a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He was previously director of the Gulf Office of RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute in Doha. Columbia University Press has just published his latest book, Security Politics in the Gulf Monarchies, Continuity Amid Change. It's the focus of our conversation today. David, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Pleasure to uh, talk about these things. As you rightly
0: point out in your introduction, many have been the prophecies and predictions that the six Gulf monarchies could not in the long term survive and yet here we are in the second decade of the 21st century, and they all look pretty robust. To what do you ascribe their seeming good health?
1: Sure. So the obvious answer here, the one that we get a lot, is that it is to do with the wealth of the Gulf monarchies. And that's a reasonable observation, of course. The the general uh, significant wealth that you find around the region is a relevant factor, but venezuela iraq and iran you know these are three states that should be among the richest on earth but by any reasonable metric yet they very much are not of course so wealth is a factor but is absolutely not you know a sufficient condition there are other things we need to think about and the other components as well as sort of finances as friendships i suppose the gulf has enjoyed an array of close alliances and partnerships i mean, you need to be careful with our language they are not alliances really not for a very long time at least partnerships and close relations more generally with key western states that has been crucial um and i suspect we lastly need to talk about good governance or good leadership it's in some ways not a, a popular topic you know it can be seen as uh, being overly nice to these autocrats but I think that when you look at the record, you look at the impact of someone like Sultan Qaboos, various of the al tombs, Mubarak the Great, contemporary leaders I'm sure we might speak a little more about later, you know, they have had a sometimes fairly transformative effect. Uh, and in the round, we can criticize them for various bits and pieces, for various policies we don't like. But in the round, in terms of forging contemporary, developing, highly developed in some ways states, they've done a surprisingly good job. So it's a confluence of those factors uh, I would describe, you know, in the first instance at least. The Arab Spring hit
0: Bahrain the hardest and it certainly rocked the other monarchies as well. So overall, how do you rate their handling of the challenges? And have they emerged from the Arab Spring much stronger than before the events of 2011
1: so as you know you know you you speak specifically of bahrain and we need to kind of break this down in many ways because you know we casually speak about the gulf doing x or y responding to what one crisis or another and uh, as you'll know um, as well as i do we need to differentiate our response quite a lot cuz different monarchies are often really quite different. So Bahrain specifically, well, absolutely shaken profoundly by the Arab Spring, at least. Um, And we see it's a, a heavily securitized response from the perspective of the government that were concerned with stability, that it was an effective response. The retort to that, you know, is reasonable to question whether, their securitized response trying to police speech trying to control civil discourse more generally trying to control which groups which actors can and cannot take part in in politics you know we could argue that those are problematic issues in the medium and long term um, and we can make cogent arguments about that but the fact remains that Bahrain has been a well, how do we describe it? I mean, without doubt, we 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 ought not describe it as blissfully peaceful or, or something like this. There is a, a fair amount of, bubbling under the surface. But broadly speaking, I think Bahrain has presented a, a, a comparatively and ten years on or a few more than ten years on, you know, a surprisingly resilient response to the spring. Um, when it comes to other states. Well, it's, you know, it's it's a long story. It depends how long we want to talk about these things. If we look to our Qatari or Emirati friends, well, the Arab Spring precipitated an era of, you know, unusual international politics from their perspectives in the sense that they became pretty much loggerheads trying to find ways to expand their influence around the region. And you can argue whether that was for their ultimate benefit or not. Um, but yes, indeed, it's a very differentiated kind of an argument that we need to we need to offer. And Saudi Arabia would they badly rattled by the Arab Spring, the
0: the, the Al Saud, and did that shape the thinking, uh, particularly when Mohammed bin Salman stepped into uh, the seized the reins of power?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, the Saudi response was. Uh, fairly straightforward. It used an awful lot of its wealth to sort of, as the phrase may go, to buy off a good amount of the the problems. Stefan Hurtog wrote for foreign policy in maybe 2012, something like this, that the Arab Spring budget, the extra, as it were, Arab Spring subsidy budget that was offered by the Saudi leadership at the time was almost as big as the entire annual budget just a few years before. So this is what Saudi did. They used a tool of governance, as it were, a policy lever, the the lever to offer more subsidies as, as it turned out, a very effective way to calm and quell some of the protests Um, and ultimately broadly successfully, uh, uh, I think, looking at it today.
0: Let's talk a a little about leadership qualities, David. I mentioned Mohammed bin Salman. Um, but I just wonder how you would rank the leaders. Where would you place Mohammed bin Zayed? And, uh, and what about MBS? Um, a, a leader about whom you write, uh, no taboo is sacred.
1: So um, I'm certainly not getting into uh, ranking uh, the leaders. I don't think that's a wise course of action necessarily. But I think we can definitely say, we can definitely talk about the leaders. Uh, they're fascinating. And they are, of course, incredibly influential Mohammed bin Zayed has overseen, you know, not by himself, but he has been at the pinnacle for a long time now. And so, yes, he has directed the rise to prominence of the UAE like we have never seen before, really. There are few states of the UAE's size in the world that is quite as influential uh, in key capitals. And this does not come about by chance. This is... A successful strategic plan, if you if you will, now huge amounts of wealth are hugely important and they are very useful when you are trying to forge a state's uh, ambitions, expand its ambit, and all these kinds of things. But you know, wealth is just one component. Wealth can be spent incredibly badly at the same time, and so there is a certain allyship between having financial resources and a careful strategic plan about how to deploy them. And on a sort of geopolitical level, I think we can say that Mohammed bin Zayed has been a successful le- leader for the UAE, uh, expanding the influence of the state, you know, just, I mean, that, that that's what it needs to be measured on, I guess, is, you know, reflecting on whether the leader has improved the, It's not the reputation per se, but that's an interesting kind of component, but improved the lot, the influence, the power of the state itself. And we can argue and we can quibble about different policies without doubt, and as we should. Uh, We can speak about the war in Yemen and whether that was successful or not. I don't really think it was in many ways uh, and so on. But I think in the round, he's been a clearly successful leader. You also mentioned Mohammed bin Salman, just across the road, um, across the desert uh, in, in the kingdom. And he's been a fascinating leader. And one interesting thing, you know, for, for the book, I kind of, it's went back to history a little bit to sort of re reconceptualize to look again at the history of the monarchies in various sectors, political, social, military, economic and environmental sectors. And when you go back to... The history, the context, you do see the proverbial Mohammed bin Salman arriving in different states many years before, Sultan Qaboos in Oman, you know, he had exactly the kind of systemically shocking, taboo-breaking um, impact on Oman, as Mohammed bin Salman is having today. We could speak about Hamad bin Khalifa in Qatar from the late 80s onwards just completely transforming the state, slaying shibboleths, you know, left, right and centre. And so the Gulf is an area where we have seen this archetype of a leader before, this often young leader comes to power, has some amount of resources, sometimes a lot of resource at his hands, it's usually a man, of course, we um, could speak about Sheikh of Moser or something in the Qatari context, but it's basically men that we're speaking about here. And they see the world differently. The, the, another quintessential example here, again, is in Qatar with Hamad bin Khalifa, compared to his father, Khalifa bin Hamid. You know, they had just com- diametrically opposed answers. You know, if the question is, how do you secure the Qatari state? The father, grandfather of today's Tamim, Khalifa from 1972, he wanted to secure Qatar by almost de facto hiding under the auspices of Saudi Arabia. So how do you secure the state? You kind of hide away a bit. And that's coherent. It's a legitimate response. But as we know, um, Hamid just had a fundamentally different set of ideas and he implemented them across the spectrum. And this is kind of what we have with Mohammed bin Salman in the kingdom. Just, yeah, taboo breaking, all those kinds of cliches. It's, It's true. And The interesting thing here, I think, for those interested, those of us interested in the Gulf and for researchers in the Gulf is to think a bit about epistemology, if if you will. And bear with me for just a second or two. But what I mean is when we want to understand what is transpiring today in the Gulf and we, you know, we implicitly we go to sources that we think will tell us information. We go to individuals, we go to books, but we also go to long-held understandings in many ways, heuristics, trying to simplify complexity. We had these ideas and sentiments have built up. So, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, we were all writing about the prominence of the Suderi Seven, you know, this elite clique within the Al Sauds. And we were saying about how very significant and very important they were, That was part of our sort of epistemology. That was about how we understood what was going on in the Gulf, in Saudi Arabia, in this case. So we had these understandings, if you will, call them cliches, perhaps if we're being a bit curt about them. But these cliches existed. But then the question is, when do they not exist anymore? When does someone like Mohammed bin Salman come along and just... You know, slay these shibboleths. And this thing has happened an awful lot. And so the point I'm making is that it becomes difficult for us as researchers to therefore reflect on how do we know stuff about the Gulf? That's what I mean by epistemology. Well, on what are we basing our conclusions when a lot of it is actually surprisingly changeable? And that's just an interesting question. I mean, it sounds very esoteric and academic and it is, of course. But again, if you're running a business or you're running a government department and you're engaging in the Gulf, you know, you are looking for these tropes and understandings, as it were. And like my point is that these things are are chopping and changing quite a lot and it's difficult to get a handle on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but 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 I look at those two, NBZ uh, and MBS, and, and you mentioned Yemen. And, and I think, well, MBZ had a clear plan, a strategy moving forward that I think is pretty well achieved, certainly in the South in Aden, whereas MBS plunged in recklessly and I I, I sometimes think that MBZ is is the kind of almost not, not the puppet master, but in the in the shadows saying to MBS, you can have the stage, you can play it up big and and meanwhile he's gotten on with, as you said, turning the United Arab Emirates, this small Gulf State into a very significant, uh, regional, and and one could argue global power.
1: Yeah, there are elements of truth there, without a doubt. I mean, I think that, you know, the last few years has been Mohammed bin Salman trying to do very similar things. We can go to issues that seem a bit trivial, like golf or whatever it may be. But these are efforts. These are methods. These are ways that Saudi Arabia wants to inculcate itself into a variety of industries around the world to really sort of recalibrate, to reframe in many ways what the state is up to. So I think these are efforts that are underway whereby Mohammed bin Salman wants to achieve those kinds of ends that were spoken to about Mohammed bin Zayed. Whether Mohammed bin Zayed has been more successful in a shorter range of time, plausibly, definitely, maybe. Depends on your your metrics, I suppose. I mean, he's been in charge for an awful lot longer You know, the Emirates is a small, comparatively nimble ship compared to the unwieldy, well, I guess we should say oil tanker that is Saudi Arabia. And so one of the advantages that you get with smaller states is, like I say, you're a bit more nimble. You can have a bit more direct control as the leader in putting people into different positions and directing them and so on and so on. Whereas with a comparatively behemoth state like the kingdom, then you have, I suspect, less kind of direct control. Now, that's something that Mohammed bin Salman has been trying to replicate with various um, endeavours that he undertook with the streamlining of quangos many years ago into an economic and a military committee, a security committee, which he controls and the likes. So he's undertaken methods, as it were, to uh, get a bit more control. But still, um, it's kingdom's more of an unwieldy beast, I think, than the UAE.
0: You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Gulf Security Analyst, Dr. David Roberts. You've probably noticed, or maybe not, that our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. David, let's now look at the efforts to diversify the economies away from oil dependency in these Gulf monarchies. How well is that going? And is there really enough urgency in ending the addiction to oil?
1: No, it's the perfect question. Um, so if I ever get the time among many you know, fascinating ideas that I've got, I would love to sort of look in more depth about this very specific question about diversification and about the concept of non-oil income. So if we look at the the reports from the IMF or whomever, there are non-oil income segments and we can see that they are rising and falling sometimes. We can see the comparative percentage they make up uh, of Gulf GDP, the economy more generally. I would like to take a deeply sceptical view as to this concept of non-oil income. You know, my provocative working title is, does non-oil income exist um, in the Gulf? Just because you spend $100 at a posh hotel in Doha, is that non-oil income? You know, if you're not there, if you ostensibly have nothing to do with the hydrocarbon industry, you are putting $100 into the hospitality industry in Doha. To my mind, that is not a particularly useful metric of non-oil income, because how far away is the individual or the institution that is paying for all of this away from the oil and gas industry more generally? And I'm very happy, happy for someone to put me back in my box here. And I think in the likes of Dubai, we do quintessentially see more organic industry that is comparatively unlinked from hydrocarbons Uh, when we say that we need to remember the bailout of 2008 2009 and such nevertheless but this is an open I think it needs to be an open question at the very least about trying to understand in a little bit more of a forensic way and thinking about the utility of our terms when we investigate these things like non-oil income and I just offer one other quick sort of example. So, in the aftermath of the Gulf blockade, Qatar um, invested heavily in its dairy industry. As you'll remember, in Baladna, this company, you know, our our land, our country, we saw Qataris, uh, Qatar Airways flying Holstein cows over to Doha, the indigenous production of dairy products and the likes. So, it's successful. It's it's a it's a viable company going to this day. But I guess my question would be. What are the layers of subsidies inherent and involved with baladna, with that pint of milk that comes out of the end? So subsidized to begin with, sure, many industries are, of course. But what about the water? How subsidized is the water? How far away or close is baladna to paying a meaningful price for the water that it extracts to run this dairy industry? And, you know, the, the the tax burden and whatever other subsidies are, I suspect, basically hidden in the business model. And so my point is, whether this one company is a proxy or not for this issue of dependency, because, again, we can we could say, I'm sure we can read articles about Baladna as a successful example of economic diversification. And again, I'm open to that argument, but I want to question it. I want to say. Maybe we ought to look a little bit more carefully at some of these industries and the hidden layers upon layers upon layers of subsidies, which subsidies that emerge from the oil and gas industry, that really underpin the viability of so many of these elements. Or this is my art, my my operating hypothesis, at least, so so-called diversified elements of industry.
0: Yeah, that, that's very interesting, David, because as you say, those subsidies are coming from gas and in the Qatar's case, they're coming from oil and and they are huge subsidies. The efforts, for example, to develop military industries in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The underlying structure is really based on hydrocarbons. Um, and of course, you know, at some point there will be peak oil. At some point, there will be a transition. and And I think that, you know, the question of, preparedness, perhaps, uh, because these, these uh, states like to talk a lot about uh, how much they're diversifying, how effective their non-oil revenues are are moving along quite briskly. But let me ask you now about security. Security, both diplomatically and militarily, has, as you well know, shifted mightily in a very short time, and no longer is the U.S. seen as the sole guarantor and protector What are the implications and how are the monarchies managing that shift?
1: No, it's a sensible question. It's a good question. So when I speak about this, I find myself speaking about the 14th of September 2019 quite a lot. So as you'll remember, that's when various drones and missiles from, we assume, Iranian proxies winged their way unopposed through various layers of missile defense systems and struck with fairly stunning accuracy, oil refining uh, plants in Saudi Arabia, notably Khurais, and in particular Abkeh. Abkeh being the kingdoms and therefore the world's largest um, oil refining installation. And the satellite footage was, was, was astonishing. You know, the pinpoint um, accuracy, almost at the same angle on, on, on a lot of the infrastructure there. And that took it out for a comparatively short period of time, actually, but nevertheless, I think this is, a fascinating sort of example to think about because this is, in some ways, the sum of all fears. This is, or that was, precisely the reason that Saudi Arabia has been investing in its extremely difficult relations with the US for 70 odd years, investing financially heavily, but diplomatically in this. Tighter up in this tricky set of relations that have spanned presidents and kings, and it was to prevent Iran, as it were, as it, as it's often perceived, from attacking the oil infrastructure, and yet here is precisely that kind of an example. And so, I see fourteenth of September two thousand and nineteen as an absolute inflection point in contemporary Gulf security. I think we'll look back and we'll talk about pre and post. Ab kick. I think that the realization that American, you know, power, whatever you were describe it, military power or otherwise, it did not deter. American technology did not protect. And then what did President Trump do? I mean, precisely nothing. You know, the 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 absolute nothingness that came from these vastly important American relations, I think was a moment of hideous clarity for leaders in the Gulf. So that is the date when I think the urgency of this understanding of precisely what America will and critically will not do for you when that was really driven home. And so kind of subsequent to that, I think we've seen obviously mounting difficulties in the US relationship with uh, many Gulf monarchies. We have seen this slightly more overt attempt to diversify politically and to a lesser degree, security wise, if you will, to, you know, again, further internationalize Gulf security. I think of this as more of a mosaic approach to security in the sense that China is not going to replace the US or anything like that. No one is saying that no one, no one thinks that, whereas you will have more of this patchwork. Uh, So Chinese missile forces are increasingly in the region, I guess. I mean, they've been in the the kingdom since the 80s, but we've seen more Chinese missiles appear in the region. We've seen Chinese drones in the region. Add to this forces from Turkey and Qatar, uh, the UK, France, and so on. And so, yeah, I think this diversification has clearly been transpiring. And the the nature of the Gulf-American relationship is just trying to kind of settle down. And the, the last thing I'll sort of say here, I think that I see this, the dynamics here as something of, as I've described as a protection curse in the, what I mean is that, you know, we all know what the resource curse is. This is the reliability that we have found in contemporary history, whereby if a state has a good amount of a particular mineral or something like this, where this is oil, timber, Ores, whatever it may be, um, it has a, re- a good amount of a natural resource. I mean, that should be a good thing, and one would expect that to be only bountiful. But there are a surprising amount of negative elements, externalities that come with that, often in the socio-democratic space. And so this is the, prote- the, the resource curse. And so I try to borrow this idea and talk about the protection curse, whereby you have the overabundance, it seems, of a good thing. You have Apparently, theoretically, a large amount of American security engagement in the region, boots on the ground. But there's a curse element. This thing that looks good actually has a range of externalities, a range of problems associated with it. And we have found that particularly in the military realm, whereby Gulf militaries often comparatively struggle to get bang for the buck, to be evidence particular efficiency, if you will. And I think the core problem, like I say, is this protection curse that Uncle Sam, if you want to blame America, if you wish, has foisted this idea that it should be a good thing, a universally good thing. But, yeah, like I say, there, there, there are negative issues as well. And so these realizations are here, whether this is post-ABCAKE or not, whether I'm right to pin that date or not. And, yeah, we are moving to this slightly new era and we are. everyone is trying to kind of feel out precisely how it's going to work out, I guess.
0: Mm, yeah, as you say, it's becoming something of a patchwork in terms of, of security, and of course, you're quite right. The American military presence of Fifth Fleet in in Manama, mm-hmm. uh, and and of course, military presence in Qatar as well uh, is still very very significant. Let me let me move on to uh, this issue of uh, human mm-hmm. rights. Can the ruling families continue to curtail the rights of their subjects to things that we? frankly, all too easily take for granted here in the West, free speech and association, free media, the right not to be arbitrarily detained and tortured. Can they continue either by direct coercion or, as you mentioned earlier, ensuring economic security to silence critical thought and action? And if so,
1: is there a price to be paid for that? I mean, clearly there are vast differences in this kind of space between, you know, uh, Europe the West, however you want to categorize it and, and our friends in the Gulf. At the same time, I'm not sure that there is quite as much daylight as there is sometimes portrayed. There's a considerable amount of uh, political expression in Kuwait, for example, in the Diwanir. The Dewanir culture there is set and feisty. And so there is that element that we need to keep in mind. I mean, Kuwait is at one end of the spectrum in the Gulf, you know, you're madness in Qatar. I mean, these are often fairly boisterous, private conversations, d- demonstrative red lines without a shadow of a doubt and the likes. I suppose my point is sometimes the situations are not quite as starkly grim as they are portrayed, but things are definitely different. I mean, I am raised in the West. I'm I am I'm British. I think our way is the best, <laughs> to, to put it in a very crude kind of a way. But I, I try to take the opinion that... I don't know what's best for all times and all places. Um, I think I know what's best for Britain, but maybe I maybe I don't even know that. So again, I'm not a fan of the Mahatma kind of logic about Asian values, about the well, Asian states, as he was sort of arguing, taking a more collectivist approach compared to the individualistic approaches in the West. That's not my personal politics. It's not how I see things. But I do. I try not to be a personally orientated researcher if you get my drift and as to whether a comparative lack of free speech association those kinds of issues uh, if your question is whether they will you know those curtailing of those issues whether they will come back to bite the leadership um, it's entirely plausible of course it is I, I don't think that's an open and shut case clearly you will get people who argue that you know, this might work comparatively in the short term, but is a catastrophe in the medium term. I just don't think there's enough, well, not not enough, but I don't know how you draw that conclusion, really. There are so many ifs, buts, maybes, and contingencies, causations, correlations, and so on. I, I struggle to work out how you, one, firmly falls on that kind of a line. So it's, it's an immensely tricky issue. Um, I've got no grand conclusions about it. I, looking at the kingdom at the moment, there's been a narrowing of the political space uh, to sort of engage on these kinds of issues. The The sentiment seems to be from the elites at the moment that they are in charge of a highly delicate, vast, truly revolutionary political evolution within the state. I mean, that sounds like hyperbole, but I'm not sure it actually is. And in this time of transition, the way I'm interpreting their actions in recent years, they want to direct the pace and the change of of the changes. They want to direct it themselves. And, you know, trying to undertake this kind of profound revolution, it's not just economic by any stretch of any imagination, but it's kind of cultural, it's linked to politics and everything else it's beyond fiendishly difficult. And if the question is whether another 5 million voices decrying X, Y, or Z uh, would be better, then, well, you can make that argument, but I'm, I'm not sure it necessarily would be. It's open for debate. I, I'm More than it's often yeah. portrayed as my point. Well, it's
0: certainly open to debate, but I suppose the point too is that if it's completely top-down and, and if you are really a curtailing uh, really critical thinking, uh, which can include criticism of economic policies. For example, if you're curtailing that and it's top down, then are you not denying uh, a huge potential? And 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 could the events and the uh, efforts of Mohammed bin Salman proceed more smoothly if there was more engagement and more critical thinking?
1: What well, I definitely agree with you in 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 the sentiment that you're posing here is I think there are huge risks if leaders become isolated at the absolute apex of any system. I think there are few ironclad laws in kind of the human experience, but absolute power corrupting absolutely, I think, is kind of getting towards it. And so, yes, without a doubt, I think there are huge risks if people, like I said, isolate themselves away, away from reasonable critique i think that's highly problematic and i think we could point to examples in contemporary history where gulf monarchies have undertaken policies that seem just strange and out of kilter and and damaging ultimately and i think we can point the reason as it were one of the some of the underlying reasons for that at you know like a, a lack of kind of broad engagement whereby you've got individuals to sort of say, hang on a minute, is this such a great idea? So that, without doubt, I think is a concern. Mm. Now, just finally, David, the book is divided into exploring five securities,
0: political, societal, economic, military and environmental. We've already touched on some of them, but we, we cannot do justice to all. So I am urging people to go out and buy the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an impressively comprehensive and highly readable exploration so i congratulate you on it Uh, but let me finally go to the last mentioned security the environment the gulf along with the broader amina region is on the front lines of the climate change battle so how well will these six monarchies manage what is in reality the mother of all existential threats
1: yes it's a Tricky question to say the least. I mean, the sh- my first flippant answer is, they'll be fine as long as oil and gas dollars are rolling in, because as we know, they mask all of these concerns under layers upon layers of subsidies. And we've kind of spoken about this already. But the reality is that we do not see a profound grassroots awareness of these issues in the gulf region for maybe for a variety of reasons but i think that a lot of it is caught up in the reality of you know the, one of the academics i i quote in the book talks about an infinity of water there is this appearance in the gulf you're driving down a road nigh on in the, in the middle of the desert um and there's verdant grass down the center and the sides and palm trees and that gives you the fake impression i think that water is not a profound concern and is not coming from um, desalination plants, sometimes fired by by um, non-renewables. And until these sorts of realities are engaged with, until, to put it sort of more bluntly, until subsidies on water and energy more generally are basically wound down, Um, And people feel the impact, the pounds and pence, the dollars and cents impact of what it costs to overcome these huge issues, climate issues, then it's something of a non-starter, I think. You know, the climate change movement in the Gulf, the region will, well, the Gulf will now have had, or by the end of the year, two Conference of the Parties, these Jamboree climate conferences in the region, and I just see those more as elite engagement rather than anything else. And yeah, not enough engagement with the fundamental difficulty of the subsidy water food nexus. That is just, it's a horribly vicious circle and one that's very difficult to square. Mm-hmm. This is one of the central challenges they'll face in the coming decades without a doubt.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this attitude that you can buy your way out of any problem that you can subsidize your way out of any problem may in itself be a very um, big trap for these Gulf monarchies. And we shall see how it plays out in in the years to come. But David, in the meantime, thank you so
1: much. My pleasure. Thanks for your time.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Dr. David Roberts, a senior lecturer in security studies at King's College London. His latest book, published by Columbia University Press, is titled, Security Politics in the Gulf Monarchies, Continuity Amid Change. I recommend it highly. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since we launched three years ago, it's been listened to over 150,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. You will no doubt have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like David. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn and search our library of more than 150 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.